choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Hey everyone, this is your host, Matthew Beers at Forecast Roundtable. Today we're going to be speaking with Dan Darling and Doug Royce regarding the European fighter market. If you happen to be in the Paris area next week, Forecast International is going to have some representatives there. Jim Head, Al Struna, Ed Hobbs, great people. Come to our table, talk to these great people. We have some amazing products to show you. We look forward to seeing you there. How important are fighters to the future security of Europe? How about that to start? Well, I think they're pretty critical. It's, you know, <laughs> uh, control of the air is considered mandatory for any kind of NATO operation. Um, so you have to get air superiority and keep it throughout the course of the war right. that you're fighting. We. In the modern environment, we don't tend to see war breaking out between pure competitors in Europe. Right. So typically, modern air power is used to project force abroad in terms of NATO operations, which encompasses most of the countries in Europe. Right. It means being able to project power outwards. Strike aircraft become very critical. You have to be able to um, target vehicles on the ground, sometimes just a single ve a vehicle. Right. Um, with a high-value target. So okay. it's it's not quite what it was in, say, Vietnam or the Korean War, where people were actively um, planning to fight against a peer competitor. So projection of force. I would say and the strike the strike mission has become very critical to the fighter market, and you have to have a, a multi-role fighter rather than a dedicated air superiority fighter. And, right. And do the fighters have to work? Do they have to be in, in a operational capacity here, or a well, committee yeah. be sitting I mean, in the hangar? Helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think sometimes when people look at the low serviceability, the low availability rates, right, they forget that most of these fleets can be brought into operation, full operation, in an emergency. Right. It would depend on the individual air force, but. It's sort of like in the modern world, you buy the fighters and maybe you have half of them down in maintenance, but you're not all that concerned about that because you're not, you don't need to use them at that given moment. What, what is this I, I read about? Some of the militaries are focusing on flyaway costs and not life cycle costs. How is that even possible? Well, it's it gets into this question of how do you evaluate two fighters? Do you, you, right. can, you can have an initial purchase price. Um, let's say, $100 million for one and $80 million for another. Right. Um, but if the maintenance costs on the second fighter, that's lower cost initially, right. um, are higher, you could end up paying more over the long term yeah. than you would for the higher price fighter initially. So that was... in The life cycle cost has become a way of measuring the total program cost. The problem with doing that is that you're just making estimates. You don't actually right. know what things are going to cost. That's true. So, I mean, if it's if it's a if it's a fighter that's been with another military and, and they share that with you, or as public knowledge, then you would know. Um, it just seems absurd to me that you wouldn't incorporate that into your purchasing decision. How much it's going to cost over the life cycle of the aircraft? Right. Well, I mean, they might do their own cost estimates, but as Doug said, that's an estimate. It's true. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think just the tendency in the past few years is to, to always evaluate aircraft against each other by looking at the total life cycle costs. Um, the problem that you can get into is that a manufacturer, once they know that the initial price has to be lower, um, they can try and make up whatever their initial low price is on the backside with higher operational costs. Right. Because once you realistically, once you've bought the aircraft, you're going to pay whatever it takes to keep the aircraft in service. Right. So um, if I'm a manufacturer, I can come in and tell you that this aircraft costs, is, costs X to maintain, and you might come up with the same, you might agree with my analysis. Um, Ten years down the road, when you have a fleet of 300 aircraft or 200, however many you bought, right. um, you're going to pay the manufacturer what you need to get the aircraft, what they need to get the aircraft flying again. Right. 
And I know that's that's part of the marketability of, of a of a new fighter or a new aircraft is okay. So how how easy is it going to be to procure additional components? How easy is it going to be to maintain right. these and repair these aircraft? Um, I know the Russian aircraft. That's a big thing because they're Spare they've been building up their network and after yeah. service sales support is. The after-service yeah. sales they've been really working on that. The Russians have the, don't have a very good reputation for right. supporting aircraft and yeah. service. Yeah. Or so. a lot of other equipment. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. I know I about mean, not the aircraft. To, not either. to come down too hard, they make some fantastic equipment, but their, it's just main, their maintaining support them. has always been an issue with a lot of um, recipient nations. I know they've been working on that, at least with the helicopters. I'm not with the fighters. I think they're lagging behind. Well, and, and and one bad part can bring down the entire aircraft. Yeah, you know, so having uh, good support is really important. Um, okay, so talking about um, you know marketability, uh, there there's demand and there's production. Uh, what does demand look like in Europe right now? Um, but which which fighters uh, are are they looking to purchase? Well, you you go to a current um, or ongoing competitions and right. really um, what you have right now in terms of countries actively looking for new build fighters, you basically have three right off the top of my head. You have Poland, you have um, Switzerland, and you have Finland. Okay. Uh, Belgium it, last fall opted for the F-35, so that eliminates one country much of Europe is either they either have their own current fighter in the case of the UK with the um the F thirty five and right. the uh, Euro <laughs> fighter. I was about to say France. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the uh, Rafael and uh, right, right. <laughs> um, and France has their Rafales, and right. the Germans are um, will look at uh, probably. Um, to replace a tornado, some yeah, form like of Super Hornet, or Super Hornet. They, it would make the right. most sense for them to continue to buy Eurofighters. Yeah, um, they're going to make more of them. They may. It's 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 an open question. I mean, it, it would make sense for Germany because Germany is a participant in the Eurofighter program to um, keep the production line open by buying more Eurofighters. Right. Um, but. For some reason, they haven't committed to it yet, and they want to look at the Super Hornet. Um, so, kind of curious why that is. I mean, the Gripen's popular. I mean, it looks like a good aircraft. Um, are, are they looking at that at all? It's a, it's a different... Germans aren't looking no, at that. It's a no. different market. It's a lighter fighter. The, the Gripen is, is yeah. on the table with uh, Swiss, the Swiss uh, competition. Right. Um, they call it Air 2030, and it's on the table for the Finnish. Okay. Um, which is referred to as HX. Okay. Um, Switzerland, uh, Switzerland's an interesting case because uh, they tapped the Gripen back in 2014 before a popular referendum was held, right. and that canceled out. The, the people voted against it, and so they had to reboot. To re Now they're trying to replace all their fighters, both their old uh, legacy F5s and... They're classic Hornets. Okay. So right now they're doing evaluations, and the Gripen is up next. It's the fifth and final evaluation, and then they'll do another set of runs next year um, and narrow down who they which, which type they want to. I believe they're going to narrow it down to two, and then they'll down-select it. Um, so the competitors are the Typhoon, the Super Hornet, the Rafale, the F-35, and right. the Gripen E. What about Russian fighters? Russian, no. Um, basically, any country uh, west of uh, the Baltics. Yeah, is, uh, right. Basically, it's Belarus and maybe Serbia, okay. which are looking at So any, pretty limited in, for right. the, the Russian Well, we don't fighters. know what's going to happen with Turkey. So Yeah, um, what, what is yeah. going to happen with Turkey? What's How, how do they fit uh, into this picture? They fit into it as if you take that S four hundred, forget about the F thirty five. I don't. So think, what is I don't think to their Washington, benefit? Which one? Which one would you choose if you were Turkey? I think it's uh, to it's a game of chicken between right. um, <laughs> yeah. Erdogan, who's 
you know, an autocrat, basically, at this point, not to take too much away from the Turkish democratic process, but at this point, he's solidified... Oh, there's solidified, not too much more to take away from yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> he solidified an awful lot of power, and um, it's... It is basically who blinks first, and I honestly do not think the U.S. is blinking on this one. It's they, very interesting because the, the process of Turkey buying the F-35 was they... The, the, you, you get a sense when you have fighter development programs, they take multiple decades to to go through from the beginning to the end in terms of just development and getting the aircraft into full production. Right. So Turkey early on, uh, when it was under a different government and kind of a different, that had a different outlook, very much wanted to be part of the program, being on the ground floor, help produce the aircraft, make parts for it. They planned on buying, I don't know, what was it? A hundred. hundred yeah. aircraft. Um, and... Since that time, the country's been moving further and further away from the United States. And there's a point from which the United States is willing to sell aircraft to countries which aren't our closest allies. But there's a point which the U.S. is going to say, we can't sell this aircraft to this person. Well, they country. can sell very dumbed-down versions of the F-35 that yeah, it wouldn't make much sense to buy so a, a, a really dumbed-down version because that also requires development money to, to dumb something down. Right, and why would you buy it if it's... Right. Yeah, it's, it doesn't it's have the, the capabilities. S, the S-400 issue and coupled with um, buying Russian equipment falls under the COTSA regulations where sanctions come down on uh, a purchasing company unless they right, get an right. exemption which India has been anticipating and still has not been granted yet. Right. So Turkey, the way they've been leaning, and the fact that the U.S. already has, uses the Ernstlich Air Base in Turkey, right. uh, the Russians would, ha would have a, a front row seat to data collect the F-35 right. and yeah. see how it might operate against the S-400, and that's... That's a strategic calculation for the U.S., and right. they can't afford to uh, offer up those glimpses. Yeah. So Turkey went all in on the S-400, which itself is a whole separate subject and a, and a really complicated one. Right. But they could have very easily have just taken Patriot or uh, the, the Eurosam um, uh, consortiums system um, SAMPT. So what is this, Ackerman. a negotiation tool for, uh, for Erdogan? I don't even uh, think so why. at this I mean, point. No, there's, there's nothing, nothing really... to be gained. Yeah. They already were given, uh, you know, they, they knew that the U.S. wasn't going to block F-35 originally. So what, right. what is really the point here other than to use it in the public square as um, protecting Turkish interests and Turkish nationalism? Right. Um, uh, you know... Erdogan likes to wrap himself in that mantle, uh, of course like a neo-Ottoman. Who doesn't mantle. these days? Sure, <laughs> a wonderful mantle to be in. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, Turkey made great economic gains. It's an important NATO partner. It's a strategic, geographically strategic country with a strong military, right. and a country that has not only been in NATO for over fifty years, but also is um, their militaries not just stocked with U.S. gear, but they've been a big buyer of American hardware, obviously. Um, but they have very close relations, had, have very close relations with the U.S. military. Are they trying to force our hand on the Kurd issue? On the, I'm on the sorry? support of the Kurds? Is that, is that? I mean, there are just a of lot it? of different points. Kurds is one. Right. Um, Syrian refugees and what's going on in Syria. Right. Because remember, the Kurds, the Kurdish issue bleeds into, there's no territorial line with that. Right. They, yeah. they have that issue within Turkey, right. with the PKK. Yeah. Um, and the U.S. has always been supportive of Turkey in terms of recognizing them as a terrorist group, not necessarily right. Turkish actions against it. Right. But you know, Kurds aren't limited to one border. For sure. So they're in yeah. Syria, they're in um, Iraq, and uh, that's, yeah, that's been one of many issues. But that's always been an issue that could be deftly handled in the past. And right. I think it's really boils down to one of the factors is Erdogan has um, gained more and more power that he can make whatever issue 
um, he feels like, you know, put planting the flag on, he can make that a, a right. decisive issue, especially after the failed coup attempt in 2016. Was and there's the, I don't know if they're trying to redo the elections now, but um, I mean, that's, that could be part of it too, right? I mean, I, I no, I mean, it, there's so many issues, you know, to, to bog ourselves down in that. Right, is, right, for is, sure. Is, so know, there's a lot of issues. Off there's a lot of possible reasons well, why well, he one, made that one decision. One thing is the Turks do have their own future fighter program, but I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I can't see. I, they they were shooting for 2023. It's, and, yeah, I mean. Uh, they'd be lucky to have They're, they're going to develop their own fighter by uh, 2023? No, yeah. I, well, it's <laughs> it's interesting because Turkey does have a fairly advanced aerospace industry you know they they are capable of making components for civil aircraft and um combat they've, aircraft. They've, yeah and they've and they've built they've built a trainer two trainers which seem mm-hmm. to have um to to been fairly successful in terms of their testing they're moving through testing regularly okay the question is you know to build a fighter there it doesn't make much sense to build a fighter that is the equal of something that was built 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Right. You have to build one that's capable of competing with the most modern fighters. Otherwise, it's fairly worthless. It's going to get shot down, right? Of course. So, yeah, yeah. you know, being can they build a stealth aircraft? Can they build an aircraft that's capable of competing with something like yeah. Will uh, it F-35? make a leap in a, right. gen- a generational leap, so to yeah, speak? Yeah, I mean, I think they could right. they could quite quite conceivably build something that was the equivalent of, of an F-16 now. In fact, they have built yeah. F-16s, yeah. license yep. built. Um, so they could do their own version. Like of a modern like F-16V or a... Yeah, because yeah, the modern F-16V is is essentially an F-16 with better boxes inside, better right. avionics, right. better radar. So they could um, do something like that. Yeah, they could, they're quite capable of developing that kind of aircraft now. But I, I in terms of a, an advanced fighter... That's a bigger question. And whatever they do, they're going to rely on outside. Well, they, they have help, to, like BAE right. systems. Or yeah. And one of the big stumbling blocks is is engines. You, if you want to have your own fighter and you want to be independent from, you know, the United States and Europe, you have to be able to build the engine. That appears to be a big problem. The it electronics huge, seem like people can can actually manage the electronics, but. From what I see, the engines really, yeah, yeah it does cause problems. Engines are it, it are kind of where they're very prosaic devices, but they're about the most advanced technology you can find because right. you have to be able to make the material that to make that, that can withstand high amounts of heat and stress. And it takes and, a long time to get that right. Right, and you yeah. it, it it revolves. It, it seems to to involve bringing together a group of engineers um, with a lot of institutional knowledge, a lot of uh, I don't know. It's almost like magic. That, that's why that, it doesn't sound very scientific. That's why companies, uh, companies, and, and people should really have faith in, in General Electric. Well, yeah. some of these companies that have the experience to build engines. It, it's just as a, as make, a regular matter, you know, we've watched the Chinese try and build engines, yeah. and we've watched the Indians try and build engines. Doesn't work and, out too and well. They struggle it yeah, greatly. They, they yeah. struggle, and it's and so. You know, there's only what something like four or five yeah. real engine manufacturers that are reliable in the worldwide yeah. Yeah. That, that that compete with each Pratt other. Whitney G. Yeah, William Rolls Royce would be the um, big three, and then you get turbofan manufacturers like Williams. Mm-hmm. You get some turbojet manufacturers. Turbojets are are very small jet engines, uh, typically, and um, so it's it's. To build advanced engines requires a high level of technical prowess, which is limited to a very few country, uh, countries and even companies. Right. So stick with what works. Right, but and that's yeah. really that's really something that that is um, difficult for countries who want to build their own fighter capability. It's actually easier to build the fighter itself than it is to build the engine to power it. Right. And if you can't get the engine, then to, you're not going to be able to keep the aircraft flying. Right. So it's a heavy glider. Yeah, it comes. It's just very expensive piece of equipment sitting on the runway someplace. Are engines going to be in terms of these these new? What, what do we have here? The uh, FCAS, the Tempest, some of these sixth generation fighters um, that, that Europe's starting to to think about developing. Yeah, um, I, I how's mean, that going to plan? Conceptual right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you have um, Safran in Europe and MTU are the big engine producers. Right. Um, so Europe has, and, and Rolls-Royce, so Europe has the ability to build advanced engines. 
Okay. I don't think that will be a stumbling block for their program. Okay. You know, should they should they build one? You know, if you want to talk about moving into that area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, real quick, circling back, um, we mentioned the Finns and the Swiss, and I right. noted that Poland has a competition. I wouldn't even call it a competition. They want the F thirty five, and that okay. was pretty much foreseen. How many do they want? Uh, this upcoming procurement, which they've accelerated forward, um, is, I believe, 32 units to begin. 32 units? So, okay. It is interesting, though, when you think about actual shooting wars, how good 32 fighters would be. It's 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 odd well, when you think... they'll still have the F-16. Right, but it, when you this think... This is a Sukhoi come on, Right. That'll, you, that'll, that'll stop the Russians until the rest of NATO... Gets in line. Well, it's it's that'll hold them off for a couple minutes. One of the interesting things about the modern fighter market is if you think back to sort of Vietnam or or you know World War II, where you you had to build thousands of fighters to maintain air superiority. You know, and these things were getting shot down and getting replaced. And and now it's sort of like everybody has thirty, fifty, something like that of that level. Too high. Yeah, and because it's they're such sophisticated pieces of equipment that you kind of wonder, can we actually fly these during combat? Because they, they might actually get shot down. Well, and if then we we'll fly them none. together as, as one NATO combined military. Yes, guess, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I always, I always think of Europe as these separate countries, but the, the military, the, the European military is NATO, right? I mean, that's when we think of, of, of They're Europe's better at acting in concert through Europe, not right. through Europe, through NATO, Right. But um, they're still individual countries. They make their own individual procurement so decisions. They still right. focus where they are able to on their own. And it's never going to be like conduct. one country w- where you're able to just mobilize all these soldiers, mobilize all these capabilities, and it's relatively fluid. It's going to be that right. much more messed up with all these different countries trying to get together, trying trying to mobilize their troops, trying well, to mobilize their fighters. Right. through NATO if yeah. they're able to, or the EU auspices. Well, it's, I'm about to oh. see how fluid this, this process is in a month, so yeah, I, I'll let you I know. I mean, <laughs> it, it, essentially none of those countries has mass. Right. Um, they, right. they just can't. They, they don't have the, if nothing else, they don't have the... the deployable troop numbers that no. and even more to the point sustainable and confident. They have all their own numbers. special capabilities. So Poland NATO, has NATO blah, blah, blah. changed so much after particularly I mean not just the end of the Cold War, but after nine eleven. So right. they and then you had successive dips in economies and they cut and cut and cut. No. And they're just they don't have the military mass. And so now they're putting the money back in, but they're right. balancing it with decisions on, as we're talking about, fighter aircraft, which are not cheap. And so you look at now the Eastern European countries, what I would call kind of the secondary markets, because they are looking for secondhand right. aircraft. Um, they're going in a more piecemeal approach and, right. and uh, finances restrict them. So they're right. they're looking at used F-16s, Griffin right. Zero fighters. Um, a country like Greece that recently talked about the F-35, uh, unless the U.S. taxpayers finance <laughs> right. a whole yeah. lot of them, I don't <laughs> know where right. they're coming from. Yeah, um, they, they can't even special, fund their personnel, so I mean, they had to <laughs> get secondhand helicopters and aircraft and everything else, uh, you know, for about 10 years while they were... Um, undergoing the bailout terms, yeah. uh, so they can't even afford their pensions. They they so. they like right. U- they they're on the Hellenic Armed Forces use a lot of U.S. sourced um, equipment, so it's natural right. that they would look towards the F thirty five, and they bypassed one F sixteen purchase uh, because of the financial crisis that hit right. the country. But an F thirty five procurement, I mean, probably. Unless the terms are, are, you know, the payments are spread out. Well, very, they want to match yeah. Turkey. They want to match if Turkey. Yeah, has but now Turkey's not getting the F thirty five. And remember, oh, so I, guess I mean, <laughs> this, the flip has been uh, the script has been flipped because 
you you know in in 2010 when Greece's economy was just bottoming out, um, Turkey had a hundred planned order of a hundred, and Greece was always the country. It was kind of the Taiwan China um, right. comparison, not as dramatic in right. size, but it was always with Greece they they spent. Um, a significant proportion of their GDP and their annual budgets on their military. Right. And they maintain a strong military, but they knew we can't quantitatively match the Turks, so we have to have a bit of a qualitative edge. Right. And there's the F-35 issue coming in. And yeah. then flat, uh, fa- uh, fast forward 10 years, you know, pretty much, and we're looking at Turkey suddenly being restricted from the F-35 and Greece potentially getting it in, right. say, five years, I think, was the window their defense minister right, they could mentioned. They could buy it down 10 or 15 years from now. It'll still yeah. be in oh, production. Yeah. It's it's interesting that it's within just how NATO... Much, how much the rest of their defense right. budget's going to get... Um, it's just fascinating that pressured. within NATO, it seems like Turkey and Greece are more likely to fight each other than Greece is ever to fight Russia, which... Yeah, Presumably yeah. is the, the enemy already, that everybody's worried right, about. Right. Well, know? Greece has yeah. a special relationship with Russia anyway, culturally, and right. and they um, they they're willing to buy uh, Russian equipment or at least engage in talks about it. Right, but they're right. not going to buy Russian fighters. Um, again, I mean, really, the Russian aircraft fighter penetration in Europe is restricted to Belarus and. Uh, you know Serbia, Serbia, and Serbia is purely secondhand. Right, they're not buying anything new. They don't have the budget for it. It's just like imagine. Croatia yeah. buying F-16s if the U.S. gives right. them permission. And, you know, it's with with countries like Croatia and Slovakia, any of the Baltic countries are. The numbers that they buy are so small that they're almost symbolic purchases. And they're buying used aircraft. So yeah, sometimes they the Balkans, I, I, not the Baltics. Yeah, they don't oh, have that. I, say, did I say the Baltics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, I meant the Balkans. It's all right. I know yeah. what you meant. The um with the with the Balkans, when you buy eight to twelve fighters, you're not planning on using those in a major shooting war. Right. You're you're essentially doing it because maybe you'll participate. You'll send your aircraft to participate you don't, you in don't, some sort of exercise. Right. It's air right. policing yeah. where right. the Do Italians or the French or the Americans right. don't have to rotate fighters over your airspace to help you. The Baltics, I don't think, to even bother with fighters. So no, they That's have none, and they, they and it would be it wouldn't they be use a NATO right. <laughs> yeah, it's like Iceland. They use a NATO rotating right. Right. Um, yeah. That's what they've been spending their money on, upgrading their airfields and their barracks and all their infrastructure for visiting NATO forces. So it makes sense. Their second biggest city is about the size of Newtown, I think. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a very defensible position if you're yeah. if you're fighting the Russians. So yeah, but I, I think in general, you know, Europe doesn't doesn't really think in terms of big shooting wars at this point. You know, right. it just doesn't seem, Dan can disagree or agree. I, I It just, because I don't follow the, the country well, that's not, close, it just doesn't that's seem not to be the very real credible right, right now. now. They do, serious. depending yeah. on the nation, they note Russia as a threat, but they're always cautious about naming. It's been a kind right. of a little game in their white right. papers. Um, they don't like to call out Russia no, you can't call it Russia because it's, they it's don't want to yeah. escalate rhetorically anything that they. But it's well known that the the Nordics, particularly Finland, um, Sweden, and Norway are are obviously that's their number one threat concern, and that's the way they view it. You know, I guess I should take back what I said because especially after with what's the going Arctic with the Ukraine push. and taking well, over the Arctic Ukraine, push Ukraine, is. Yeah. Uh, you have you know counterclaims. Russia definitely likes to. And and not to point the finger at them because all countries do this to a degree, but they like to penetrate NATO airspace over the Baltics, over the UK, Iceland. They like to see response times. It's a great sleight of hand. So it's a great it, it, sleight of I hand. I mean, it's not a they they buzz Norwegian warships in in the high north. It's it's not clearly there's no war going on, and obviously they're. They're not. I mean, I'm. I'm not disagreeing. I don't think that. No, that's, in fact, I've taken. They're not back on a. They're not on a war footing, but they are, especially Sweden. 
is has woken up and the Swedes have completely um, brought out the old playbook from the Cold War where they have civil defense and, and they're looking at old stocks of coastal missiles. Um, after the incident uh, several years ago where a submarine was in the bay in Stockholm right. and and right. they never could identify it, but they're, they're, their wargaming is Russia-centric as it is right. for Finland. But um, in general, it's it's several things. It's civil protection and um, disaster relief. Right. Um, it's counterterrorism or any internal security. It's NATO, EU, or UN peacekeeping deployment, forward deployment. Right. NATO or EU crisis response on a military level, if that were ever to occur. And... Um, that's about it. It's, it's protection of their their own aerospace. So it's funny that they're they're concentrating on this. They're, they're concentrating on things like fighters and, and peer-to-peer warfare. When you look at Crimea, and they took that over without firing a shot. Well, they they concentrate on that too. They yeah, I that's hope so. been a big part of NATO yeah. doctrine. Has been hybrid warfare yeah. and civil affairs and, exactly. and cybersecurity and information warfare. Yeah. Um, but those are more, they don't you know, gray that areas really. that right. are harder. Yeah. So they have to, they have to have um, whole of operations planning. And, right. and, and all those countries do do that. It's not something they've ignored. France, Britain are on top of it. Definitely the Baltics, um, definitely uh, the Scandies. And this is where the, the projection Nordics of power comes in. It's, right. it's kind of that, that whole Well, there's, whole there's projection of power and there's deterrent. Deterrence, yeah. You know, and sometimes even if it's a symbolic deterrent, in the area of combat aircraft, that's a deterrent. Right. You, right. Not penetrating our airspace, not, not getting close to our borders. Yeah, right. Um, it, it, it's, it's a lot of air-sea. There's less in some areas, you know, um, the UK and France are definitely emphasizing uh, the air-sea domain a bit more than the land forces domain, not to say right. by any means that those are ignored, but it's they also project outwards, as Doug had mentioned. They yeah. do much more operational tempo in overseas missions. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. Um, but what were we talking about with the Well, uh, I the think, fighters? you know, the interesting... I With fighters, I think... Up until about five, six years ago, now that I'm thinking about it more, Russia was not, people weren't thinking about Russia as a real threat. Mm-hmm. They were more focused on overseas yeah, the Georgia deployments. Thing didn't really yeah, but, mean anything. Well, yes. no, actually, maybe even, no, <laughs> no big deal. But yeah, the financial crisis think, happened a month after that. Yeah, right, but I think also yeah. Once, yeah. once Russia went into Ukraine and mm-hmm. the invasion of Crimea, just, I think. And it began to change the conversation because Georgia, at the time Georgia took place, it was sort of like, well, five day conflict. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's a small country, country it's, no it's big right deal, slice it apart, just yeah, move on to the it's next It's traditionally next so thing. close to the Soviet yeah. Union. And they're they're of basically part of Russia anyway, so right. who cares, right? Don't tell it Georgia. <laughs> yeah, well, but I think, I think that was kind of the viewpoint initially. And then, yeah. you know, it's not just the invasion of Crimea, but it was also... The Donbass was you another know, big right. thing. And then you right. had the passenger jet yes, shot, that was down. shot down. And you had and you have more patrols, long-range patrols that Russia's doing. They're sending bombers out. So the Russians have been putting right. forward kind of a more aggressive posture, which in the West doesn't seem to be starting panic, but I think more maybe it's people a, sort of going, it's an Eastern where's Europe, this going? Yeah, you it's know? an Eastern Europe, Western Europe divide. Old NATO, right. old Europe, Versus yeah. former Soviet satellites, the Warsaw right. Pact nations that were basically held prisoner yeah. by Moscow. Um, you know, the Russians did the cyber attack on the Estonian mm-hmm. government servers in 07, right. um, which was triggered by removal of a Soviet statue uh, from, I believe it was a town square to a cemetery or so something. And don't they, remove and the ethnic Soviet Russian, the, the Russians used the ethnic Russians in Estonia um, as an outrage flank. Right, and as, as so, they will in the future. Right, it's their compatriots policy, which, right. um, but anyway, 
you you saw through harassment of Norwegian Coast Guard ships um, running the old uh, Tupolev blackjacks in, into aerospace all over right. Europe in around 2007. Then you had Georgia invasion right. in two, August 2008. Uh, it, it just was building. The, the, some of the focus was lost because of the financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis. Right. But, you know, if you're France or the UK, Russia isn't as big yeah, of a concern. Border, and that's what people right. think of is, is Europe. I mean, but Spain and Portugal have a different, you know, security outlook. Um, and Germany just and wants I don't mean oil, to say so. yeah I don't mean to say that they're <laughs> sorry uh, Georgia <laughs> I don't mean to say that they're they're, they're not NATO centric or they don't share some of the same concerns but their right. orientation is pointed differently in a different direction but the Eastern it's, European they care countries, about their own tribe not not the tribes in they Eastern care Europe. about security <laughs> in the Mediterranean right human trafficking migrants um, flows right. they they care about securing their outward islands you know for Portugal the Canary Islands makes sense um, but if you're in Eastern Europe it's a much different picture particularly because you you were under the Soviet boot for so long right and you're vulnerable um, so what you see in the going back to combat aircraft, is we got to get off this Russian legacy hardware, where, whatever it is. For sure. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's, you know, patrol boats used for riverine security or um, uh, AK-47s right. or small right. arms, uh, artillery, combat aircraft, transport aircraft. They're moving off it because that, makes them vulnerable of course yeah and it's in in a lot of cases their kit is outdated anyway right um but you saw it with the bulgarians they um had some old migs and they had to upgrade the engines to keep them serviceable while they if they ever get new fighters right and um one of the issues was was the pole said we'll take care of those engines we'll maintain them and the russians were like no and it ended you end up going back to the Russians to service your equipment. Right, that's a problem. And even though, again, in some of these countries like Bulgaria and Greece have historically uh, warm, to uh, to a degree, ties with Russia, Right. Um, it's still not something as NATO members they want to have to endure. And right. they also know they have to have some lo loose level of standardization with the West. Right, So. Yeah. Better to have a French fighter or, a, you know, an Italian Eurofighter or whatever, American fighter aircraft that some allies know how to operate as well and you can train with them. Right. Then and, and if you don't, if you don't get the, the F-35 or fifth generation fighter soon, you're really going to be behind the curve because, like we said, they're, they're already starting to develop sixth generation fighters so that's uh yeah well we'll see the the paris air shows this coming week and right. we know that the franco-german um intergovernment team will make a big splash out of it um okay with the something FCAS. to look forward to there's gonna be a big splash <laughs> well, yeah there and those concepts are basically fighters supported by um drone swarm swarms right. and and right. And up software that's you know whatever the combat cloud is, and, and if you want to get your you can foot right. while you're in the yeah. air, and yeah, um, if you want to get your foot in in one of those new sixth generation fighter programs, probably the best thing to do is come visit our booth, right? Could be. <laughs> that's what I'd say. Know. I mean, I'm a little for biased all, here. For all the <laughs> sixth generation fighter news, go to the Forecast International yeah. booth. Our sales reps will gladly help you. Yeah, um, yeah. those those are they're still conceptual but they're going to put the money into them they're going to make an effort it's they're planning to move on from the typhoon and the rafale and the british are moving on from their Eurofighters as well right um, so there are also industrial protection programs right. and sustainability programs i have, I have a hard time believing though that britain is going to build its own fighter that um, that'll be interesting but yeah they they are very determined to sustain their... They won't um, be selling it to France, that's for sure. No, 
or yeah. Germany. Well, the, the Frank, <laughs> Franco-German won't be sold to Britain. You know, that's either, either not way, gonna. There's right. not gonna be that. Is Brexit gonna cause a problem with the the Brexit, fighter uh, market? I, mean, I, don't, I don't think on the fighter side. No. Or side okay. I mean, so that's that's gonna kind of. It'll be easier be, for the Brits when the whole nightmare of the Brexit right. exit is done with, because okay. it's really taken up all the political oxygen in the room, and they need to get through that. And when they do. They can move forward, but you know, so Gavin, Will- Gavin Williamson was the one that. Now, now in the 2015 SDSR, they did earmark um, two billion pounds okay. and outline a, a future air combat capability um, development plan, and okay. that was essentially what Gavin Williamson announced at Farnborough last year. But now he's out as that defense secretary. Penny Morden is in the, and there will be a new prime minister in another right. month. So yeah. it's always moving. The UK I, I needs do, more fighters. I, I do think the UK is intent on trying to, I would almost say, recover some of their defense in the industry capability because they've yeah. outsourced um, some of that through through buying from other nations. Right. And, and it, for a while, it was really hurting their maritime sector. Right. Um, but they're, they're making it... A concerted effort to try to protect what they may in on the defense industrial side, right. but with Tempest, they're going to need a foreign partner. They've got. I mean, you don't just develop a, a future fighter without scale. Yeah, I, I think that's the that's the issue for any. It doesn't matter which party's in in power in Britain. That you've got the issue if you're only going to buy 150 or 200 aircraft, then. You're not going to be able to build. They them won't even buy that each, many. Each yeah, one right. in the unit price would be right. Would be hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's many countries that would be willing to partner with them who so, are trying to so, build up their own defense industries. Right. Sweden and Italy would be potential partners for the Brits. The Italians right. have not shown any interest whatsoever in joining the Franco-German um, fighter program. Of course not. Yeah. Um, they and they really do not seem interested and. Uh, Spain is Spain, is yeah. now in that project, but they will be looking at um, a Harrier replacement. So I thought they were getting F thirty five B for that. F thirty five B will be the right. successor there. So okay. um, they can't be getting too many. No, they don't have many Harriers to begin. No, with. it's just so for their limited. It's, it's just one. Just for it's the NATO one exercises. <laughs> no, it's they do have yeah. one um, amphibious ship that they operate those off. Oh, wow! So um, didn't know that. They like to project the force. I mean, they're a maritime nation. So, right. um, but uh, Sweden has shown interest in the British program, and uh, Saab made a public statement last November that they were in deep discussions with what the Brits call Team Tempest, which is a, a combination of both government agencies, ministries, and um, and industry partners in the UK. Right. So we'll see what comes out of it. Um, okay. it it's definitely in flux, let's put it like that, because right. one partner that had been kind of talked about was Japan and and the Japanese like we want our own right and so you get a little bit of protectionism in there and even on the Swedish side I believe Saab's statement was or Sweden government statement was we're still going to want to ensure that we get substantial work share and our technology is protected etc I think also when you look at a place like Japan or South Korea they often talk about opening up competitions to European competitors, but from a pure geopolitical standpoint, Europe does not have the capability to really support Japan and South Korea against their potential enemy, who we probably shouldn't name, just like we shouldn't name the Russians, but who is always there. You know, you're, right. you're so an, an unnamed you know, talking about China. Yeah, an unnamed, <laughs> unnamed. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't think, yeah. New, Zealand is, I don't think New Zealand's attacking South Korea, though. Okay, we won't talk about New Zealand anymore. Right, New Zealand. So, um, but you know, they part of building alliances with the U.S. is to buy U.S. aircraft, right. and so 
Um, both no, South Korea and, and, and now we're sure. moving away from, and I don't want to go too far away from Europe, but just in right. terms of realistically, when you hear about European companies wanting to expand into defense markets in Asia, right. it's very difficult for them because they, they are not like the United States with the giant Navy who can project force into okay. the Pacific. So in terms of marketability of, of fighters, the Pacific is just the United States. I would say, you know, there's you get some Swedes, you yeah, get some Gripen Swedish is, purchases. Gripen, a little Gripen is not a... Yeah, I don't want to get off Europe too much, but right. India... Um, but this we'll is talking what, about them as export exporters. About, yeah, as exporters, like yeah. Sasab is the Gripenese and export. I mean, so some of the smaller there's, there's nations, potential. Cambodia, I don't know, Vietnam, Thailand has the Gripen. Right. Thailand, Thailand, so because yeah. because the Gripen occupies this space for a light, low cost fighter that's easy to maintain. Right, it's not considered one of uh, as powerful as say uh, Rafale, a Eurofighter, F fifteen, big twin engine fighters can carry. Uh, you know, are fairly long range and carry a lot of weapons. It's much, right. has a much smaller payload. Um, well, the Saab would probably dispute that and say it's the equal, but realistically, <laughs> right. the way the market looks at it, they say... Please don't stop by our booth, Saab. <laughs> <laughs> they might dispute that, but I think in the market, that's the way it's viewed. So you would see them, you know, in places like, well, Brazil. Brazil. Perfect um, for countries like Brazil. Right. Well, the Czech Republic has Gripens. Yeah. Hungary has Gripens. Perfect for those countries. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah. India so far hasn't said, we want to, we're going to buy 200 aircraft. Let's bring mm -hmm. the Gripen in. Now, Saab claims um, that the Gripen is the only modern fighter that can deter Russian electronic warfare. That can take down Russian oh. fighters. That's what the, I that's did what not I know that. That's, that's what they're claiming. Maybe so. they should stop fire <laughs> and give us some more inside yeah, I, dope into that. I can't evaluate that. I'm not. That's, um, what, that's what they said. I think that's right. what the CEO said. Um, I don't. I don't know if it's a valid claim or not, but um, right. I mean that that's that's marketable. Yeah. I think um, even if you had maybe a few of, of the Gripens uh, in your your aircraft inventory, you know, right. do the electronic warfare well, thing. I mean, there's still plenty of export opportunities for the Gripen. I, yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't be shocked to see Switzerland go back right. for the Gripen. I'm not right. saying that's that will be their choice, but I would not be surprised if the Gripen wins that Indonesia. contest. Indonesia. Well, the Pacific Indonesia's right now Indonesia's been is, talked you know, about. They've definitely talked about the Gripen. Um, they're spending billions of dollars um, all over the Pacific right now upgrading mm -hmm. their, their current fighters, so they're spending money on that right now. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's a, it's a viable export I think less so, less so for Rafal and Typhoon. Right. Um, and that Rafal and Typhoon compete more directly with... Well, that's the goal of the next generation, right. is to eliminate some of that competition. But as, as you know, the Eurofighter was supposed to do that, and France pulled out. Right. So you always get those, you know... Um, the Eurofighter program, I don't think, um, ended up being what they wanted, right? The, the market somewhat changed in that the Eurofighter was initially designed to be more of an air superiority fighter. Right. And so it entered the market just as multi-role fighters right. um, that had a much more robust strike capability were, were becoming more in demand by the market. Right. Um, they're remedying that through upgrade programs. Okay. So, you know, right now for Eurofighter and for Rafal, the big export markets is the Middle East. Right. Because what you need, because and those maybe are... Maybe India, maybe. Oh, yeah. I India, mean, Rafael, India uh, yeah. has a, a toe has, in the door with right, the 32-unit 30, yeah. one. 150 Rafales, 12 Rafales, 36 Rafales. It could Rafales. be, but India, India is always very difficult to <laughs> predict. Yeah, and Rafael, <laughs> I mean, their exports, like Egypt, they basically almost paid for those to go to Egypt. You know, that, right. the credit they did, agreement yeah. was... Yeah. It was... To a point where I'm like, why not just donate those? Right. Because and it was yeah. a small order, if I remember, right. and it, I don't remember if Egypt did a top up, but it was 24, I believe, was the Rafale purchased by Egypt. Well, it was, for a long time, Rafale could not. They couldn't crack get, an export. They order. could not get an order, and it, it was interesting right. because Dassault traditionally was very popular provider fighters when it was the single engine Mirage, right, which Mirage, was yeah. a less sophisticated fighter, but it was very popular in the Mid-East and elsewhere because right. it was India relatively low cost. Still, low and cost. the nice thing about the French was, Simple. unlike the United States, they weren't constantly in your face demanding you act like a good ally. They pretty right. much sold the aircraft Just and you could, 
You they had a very Russian way of uh, approaching <laughs> yeah. the geopolitical angle. So, like, if you couldn't we get... We don't care, buy it. Yeah, yeah. if you don't want to get aircraft from the Russians, you didn't want to buy them from the United States, you could buy them from, from France. Right. Um, but the Rafale is a, was a, is a slightly higher-end aircraft. Right. Um, what happened was in the Mideast, you had a, a number of... Um, outside of Egypt, but some of the, the Gulf nations... Yeah, Qatar realized, had the Mirage. Yeah, realized from, that... Um, the way you get influence with Europe and the United States is you pay out for their aircraft. Of course, it worked you for know, me. Buys a lot of uh, yeah, and money. then there were U.S. troops <laughs> over there in Kuwait right. and, and Qatar, and and the ground shifted under them a bit. Yeah, um, and at that point, you know, the Saudis bought the Eurofighters from Britain, and and then bought the F-15s. Yeah, I mean, yeah, theoretically, uh, what would have made the most sense from pure cost grounds is to pick one or the other. We either make right. you either sent to your air force on on the F-15 or you do it on the, the Eurofighter. Right. And so uh, whether they actually need the number of aircraft they've bought is a, for military need is an open question. But what they'll do is they'll they'll sometimes, if things start to go south diplomatically, it's not unusual it's for them to for suddenly them. come yeah. in and go, you know what, we'll buy another 36 yeah. fighters. There's a, oh. there's a degree of good strategy. Yeah, leverage yeah. for sure. Why not just give us the money? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Why you weren't why just offering to pay thirty-six for billion dollars? Just hand the money over. I guess politeness. <laughs> they it's are recycled. Just, they're recycled just, yeah, petrodollars. Yeah, you don't want to be rude, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, Rafal had a hard time getting um, export orders, and then yeah. they've gotten some, but now they're moving on to you know they're already lo- looking at the future landscape. The French right, are, right. and as they have to, but. Um, we'll, we'll find out more with the, the FCAS is essentially a, a, a system, um, of systems. It's the NGF, the new generation fighter is the fighter component, right. the man fighter. And that's the sixth generation right. fighter. And I'm, would be interested to see if there aren't some industrial work share disputes coming up. Cause apparently the German government was reported, um, only a week ago, was kind of pestering Airbus about how much work share they're going to get because, you know, they don't want to cede that domain over to the French side. And, right. um, and the French had a um, uh, UAV program with the British, a male um, UAV right. uh, called FCAS. And that just, okay. uh, finally, they both sides finally pulled the plug on that. And so... Right. You know, it's an interesting landscape where Brexit really shifted the Franco-British um, burgeoning military relationship. They, right. The Entente Cordiale is what they were calling it. Right. Um, it was. It came out and it had been building, but the 2010 Lancaster House uh, Accords between Prime Minister David Cameron and um, I believe it was Sarkozy at that time. Francois, uh, God, I forgot his first name. <laughs> Nicholas Sarkozy. Oh, with Nicholas. Okay. Yeah. We know Nicholas. We're familiar with. I so always think every Frenchman is named Francois. <laughs> well, the <laughs> French <do>. president <laughs> and the British prime minister came together. And they they signed some agreements, and one of them there was a lot of um, industrial uh, and technological collaboration on the table, and that hasn't been Not complete. Anymore. No, it hasn't been completely unwound well, by that's any good. means. They and they still. Um, I believe it was a joint uh, deployable rapid reaction force uh, taken from both armies. Um, they still have worked on that. Uh, but, you know, um, it was Dassault and BAE Systems working on the um, FCAS, and that's kaput now. It's, so it's tough, it's though, tough. With, with joint programs yeah. because usually you, get, you do the joint program because you want to share cost of development. Right, right. But your needs you change run in, too. They yeah, evolve. and you run into this issue that, that you know over the long term of the relationship, one side might be unhappy with its share. One might feel it's not getting or the mission much type out of they it. Want yeah, they, they might evolve yeah. away. Are we and you, talking about the fighter market right now, or any, my, <laughs> my old relationship? Here? Any, any but, you platform that's jointly developed, but particularly in aerospace right. systems. And look yeah. at like F-35. Their initial view on F-35 um, 
was to bring in a number of countries as work share partners, as initial partners, right. in order to lock them in as customers because they figured, well, once if you have a work share on the on the fighter program, you're going to come yeah. in and order the aircraft. Of course, yeah. And then you look over what happened with Canada. Canada is actually doing work share on the program, but now is saying, well, you know what? Maybe we don't want to work on the air. We don't want to buy the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets give, a bit give them ten more years, they'll be, they'll be back buying. Yeah, it. so then you don't Jeez. know. You don't know if there's such a mess. Yes, yeah, so that in four <laughs> years they're not going to switch governments, or three years, whatever long it's going to be, and then right. they'll be back in the program. So whenever you no, do, it's very true. Uh, absolutely, right. Whenever you yeah. do joint programs, it it there's benefits to it, but it adds a level of complexity that you don't get in in something like yeah. the U.S. I, program, where I, you might say. Right. We're going to buy F. We're going to buy Super Hornet. We'd like to have some export orders or F sixteen, but we're developing it. We're building it on our own. Yeah, so and there's not more to, stakeholders, more chiefs. It's more complicated. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the Korean program is an example with the Indonesian side, the KFX, right, yeah. uh, and the Indonesians were ponying up, partly right. because of um, financial pressures. But uh, you know, they finally did kick in their share but right. it's an example of how vulnerable those things india are, and russia right? on the um uh, the su-57 yeah. knock yeah yeah they're they're very difficult so yeah. we'll see i i'm sure the 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 franco-german one i mean there's there's a reality um that with brexit um this is an opportunity for deeper Franco-German industrial partnership. And there's already some consolidation across the European uh, defense industrial environment. But, you know, it, it definitely changed some things and, and strategic orientations. And if, if we want to have more, um, eliminate as much duplication and everything else, we got to offer up more European-centric platforms. And so we'll see what comes with it. But they, I mean, they'll make an effort. The, the two governments will make an effort to get this done. And like I, I keep leaving Spain out, but they're they're in there as well. So. Right. Yeah, I just think the cost involved with developing a new fighter aircraft is so high, it's getting harder for a single country to do it. I mean, in terms of single mm -hmm. European country, in terms of the, the budget that you have and... You know, the French developed Rafale on their own, you know, and, and and the program's been successful. But I think overall they would like to expand outward to other partners. So within Europe, once they want to keep the fighter, the ability to develop and produce new fighters, they want to keep that capability. They're never going to want to fully outsource that to the United States, say, by everybody building, if they're buying F-35s. Right. Um, but to do that requires a large investment over a long period of time and through successive governments, right? Yeah. So you're going to have to have partnerships. Now it could end up we end up with two, one fighter. We could end up with two fighters. There could be a British, Swedish, Spanish team, or a, a French German, or it could be French German Spain. Yeah, we don't it's really happened know before. yet. Yeah. Tornado was example. Well, this is whatever happens. Th there's definitely room for people to make a lot of money. Right. In this market. They're not going to stop buying fighters. They're not going to stop buying fighters. There's lots of room for development, um, lots of room for upgrades. and it's, They um, want to protect their advanced defense technological prowess, and right. that's part of it, too. And they okay. need the steady work share. Um, they want to maintain the jobs. They don't want to lose the technical skills. They keep engineers employed, et cetera. It, it's... it's it, it's big business, and, right. it, and it's right. a, a strategic sector for all those countries. And Plus, it's, again, it's just, you can't just switch back and forth, too. You can't sit there and say, well, we're building fighters now. Now we're going to go build a commercial, like a business jet. Right. And now we'll go Very back different. to doing fighters. Yeah, right. yeah you lose the skills right. and the know-how. So this is a very complicated landscape, and I'd have to say if, if anybody wants to know more about it, um, they, they can uh, contact uh, me or Doug or Dan or uh, one of our analysts here. Uh, we can help you navigate this this very complicated landscape, and of course, uh, we're going to have to charge you for it. <laughs> right, but but at a very reasonable cost. At a very reasonable to, cost, though. Feel free to you. come by our booth at yes, Pavilion Three at Le Bourget. Yeah, come by our week. booth, see what we have, um, see how we can help you. Uh, like I said, navigate this uh, this very complicated European uh, landscape in the fighter market. All right, everyone, that's it for today's podcast. Join us next time at Forecast Roundtable. 
I don't know what we're going to be talking about, but I'm pretty sure it'll be interesting. I'll catch you next time. And of course, before we leave, if you don't already have a ticket to Paris, get one now. Because we're going to be there at the Paris Air Show. Jim Head, Al Struna, Ed Hobbs, great people. Come to our table. Talk to us. We're going to show you some great products. We'll see you there. Bye, everyone.